Take your girlie to the movies If you can't make love at home There's no little brother there who always squeals You can do an awful lot in seven reels Take your lessons at the movies And have love scenes of your own When the picture's over and you have to leave Don't forget to brush the powder off your sleeve So take your girlie to the movies If you can't make love at home Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 181. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we've got a couple of movies with nasty white people in them. The first one I'm going to do is in, in reverse chronological order. The first one is an Australian film, Fred Skipsey's 1978 movie based on Thomas Keneally's novel based on real events. That is The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith starring Tom E. Lewis, Ray Barrett and Jack Thompson. Then we go back to 1956 for an old favourite of mine. a An action film and Amer- with American stars written and produced by English people. And it is Run for the Sun starring Richard Widmark, Jane Greer and Trevor Howard. Um, it's a remake of a previous movie but I like it a lot and I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get to that stage of things so anyway sit back relax take it easy I'll get the contact details out of the way and start talking movies Paleo Cinema podcast appears every two weeks it's a podcast of classic film appreciation the rules are pretty easy to remember each episode is talk about two movies in it and the movies have to be over 20 years old apart from that they can be of any genre Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com. iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I'd like to acknowledge the Korong Jung Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. Hey, how's everybody going? Uh, it's a sunny day today. I'm looking out the window. I cannot see a cloud. Um, it was quite warm. I've driven about 300-odd kilometres today as well. Sally and I spent last night and overnight and yesterday in a town called Warrnambool in um, southern Victoria on the coast, southwestern Victoria. Uh, We needed a day away, so we went away, looked at a lot of um, shops, took a look at the um, landscape, uh, bought some books. I bought a few movie reference books, including one about Howard Hawks, which is quite good. And in general, um, just kind of chilled out. I wasn't sure I was going to get the podcast out this week. So I sent out a Facebook message saying it would be a week late, but it's not going to be. We got back here in time for me to do the podcast. I've got the two movies that I'm going to talk about organised. And um, all is well with the world from that point of view. I hope everybody's fine out there. And um, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you're doing okay. If you're in Fiji, and I don't know whether I have any listeners in Fiji, um, sorry about the cyclone. There's uh, Fiji's just got hit by an enormous cyclone, which has caused immense infrastructure damage. 
And me saying sorry about the cyclone makes it sound like it was my fault, which it wasn't. I had nothing at all to do with the weather around that part of the world, or indeed weather anywhere else. So I'm refreshed, I'm relaxed, I've seen a few good movies, which is never a bad thing in the world, and I'm ready to podcast. So um, let's get on with it. Of course, the first thing we always talk about is the stuff that I've been watching lately. So I brought up my letterboxed, and... Um, yeah, I've seen a couple of good films, a couple of good ones, a couple, an old one that's um, a favourite for odd reasons. First one I saw was an old one that I picked up for $5 from Umbrella Entertainment. And it's Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the Steve Martin comedy, directed by Carl Reiner. And, um, yeah, basically it's Steve Martin's... Um, detective spoof on film noir where they actually cut him into scenes from classic films noir things like the bribe and um this gun for hire and things like that they kind of do a mashup between the steve martin and the characters with him including people like rachel ward and carl Ryder, the director playing a nazi which is quite interesting and once you get the conceit of the joke it's it rolls pretty steadily from there, but it does. Uh, it is a movie that introduced me to a really good film where I didn't know about called The Bribe, which I talked about on a previous Paleo Cinema podcast. And um, yeah, it works kind of well. You've got him cross-cutted with Humphrey Bogart in amusing ways, and Vincent Price, and um, all sorts of other people, Charles Lawton. <laughs> so uh, I like it for that reason. It's got a lot of those kind of film noir tropes and subverts them a little bit and yeah it's um it is a bit of fun it's not as funny as it was the first time i saw it because i I now know the punchlines and things but it was good to revisit it and i don't mind paying five dollars at a dvd sale to pick that up um I also saw a movie that I just got the Daybill poster for because it's got a very cool poster it's a mid-1960s I think about 1966 Amicus spy film now amicus is more known for horror movies as we know the english film company amicus but this one is uh, one of their rare excursions out of that realm and it's danger roots starring richard johnson uh gordon jackson's in it sam wanamaker and um diana dawes carol lindley and sylvia sims uh it's about a kind of government assassin played by richard johnson uh who wants to retire He's got a boat half um, share in a boatyard on the island of Jersey. And it's about his attempts to retire and various machinations between him and other spies. Um, and it's not too bad. It's relatively low budget because um, it's an amicus film and they never really had the dough to splurge on their productions. But, uh, yeah, it's not too bad. It's got a very bad theme song, though. They they tried to do a James Bondy kind of theme song, and it just doesn't work because it's not particularly good. But Richard Johnson's always kind of fine in, in the movies he did. Good, honest actor. And he did those two spot Bulldog Drum and Spy movies as well. Some girls do, and um, Deadlier Than the Male. So he was kind of like a, a B-grade James Bond ish sort of character in several films so you know, it, was, it wasn't a bad thing and because i liked the poster so much i bought a daybill poster of danger route which is very kind of 1960s style of uh poster and I'm, I'm quite pleased to have picked one of those up 
quite cheaply. The day bills are starting to get more expensive and the really well-known and well-regarded films are getting ridiculously expensive. So what I tend to do is when I'm buying stuff, I'll find the minor stuff that I enjoy and keep my collection going based on that. And oddly enough, that leads me to the movies I'm going to talk about today in a backwards way. Um, oh, yeah, one more movie I want to talk about, though. I did see the Chris Rock, Rosario Dawson film Top 5, which is about a celebrity actor who um, wants to steer away from comedy. He had a successful series of um, comedy movies where he plays a man in a bear costume, Hammy the Bear, and his character, um, Andre... Um, wants to get away from comedy and he's in New York to promote his film and meets up with Rosario Dawson's character. It's one of those meet cute things, but it's also a little bit about celebrity culture and about well, how it is in the 21st century to be a celebrity, particularly when you want to change your life and you don't know what to do and um, and you're making a, a serious movie that's basically starting to tank. And it's got a lot of good cameos in it. Uh, it's one of the rare bits of Jerry Seinfeld in a strip club, amongst other things, uh, playing himself. It's got Adam Sandler playing himself, which he does much better than he plays anybody else. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of wasn't expecting too much from it, but I did, it engaged me and I did like it. It is, a, in a sense, a romantic comedy. And uh, Rosario Dawson, of course, is fantastic in it, as she is in pretty much everything she does. And if you haven't, if you've got a little time and you're kind of on the fence about watching that movie, you might want to give it a go because it isn't bad at all. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I kind of took a punt on recording it off cable. And it's um, better than I expected it to be and it was entertaining. So there you go. Uh, Anyway, I'm going to take a break. Now when I get back, I'm going to talk about these movies in reverse chronological order. And first talk about Fred Skepsi's 1978 Australian film about uh, an indigenous man on the run called The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. Always tell a missionary, Black. You get seven and six a week, Tucker. Horse, sleep in the stables, no boots. Where have you been, Master Blacksmith? Haven't it occurred to you that you might be needed for higher things? You do read, don't you? Of course I read. <laughs> Morning, boss. This is. Yeah. yeah. No reference. That's cause you can't bloody write. <laughs> I come to help you get rich. I trust your nigger to turn my property into a black scarf then. What about me groceries? We need him. Look, the husband's not a charitable institution, Mr. Blacksmith. What will you lend your wife to white boy? White fella don't lend his wife to anybody. I understand you're going to marry a white girl, Mr. Blacksmith. You marry a white girl. Bad total. You owe me, Mr. Newby, for 900 yards. Listen, Jimmy, don't you come to Bush Lawyer with me.
seen my palgrave? You'll only lose that child of yours if you stay with the blacks. Believe you've got a real, genuine white. Jesus, you're a fussy, bloody black. Black bastards. The chant of Jimmy Blacksmith is the chant of the underdog. That's what I've done. Declared war! The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith is a 1978 Australian film directed and written by Fred Skepsy based on a novel by Thomas Keneally, the same guy for international people who don't know him, who wrote the novel on which Schindler's List was based. Keneally wrote his novel based on a true story of an Indigenous man, Jimmy Governor, who, with his brother Jack, uh, killed a bunch of white people in the midwest of New South Wales around the turn of the century. Uh, actually, his brother's name was Joe, not Jacob. My mistake there. I apologise for that. Now, I'm going to read you a bit from the Brisbane Courier uh, on Saturday, January, tw- uh, sorry, Saturday, July 28th, 1900. Mr. H.G. Sanderman of Waverley left to off a mudgie with a couple of bloodhounds to assist in the search for the black murderers. As the scent is now old, Mr. Sanderman is not particularly sanguine of success, but he will do the best he can. It's expected that in a fairly good country, the dogs will cover 20 miles a day. Over 100 constables and 12 trackers are now out in search for Joe and Jimmy Governor. The Aboriginal is concerned in the recent murders, and it is proposed to swear in a number of special constables to assist in the work. The men chosen will be those of good knowledge of the country in which the blacks are travelling. The Colonial Secretary stated that the blacks would have to be declared outlaws before this, but it appears that the Act authorising the government to declare murderers to be outlaws has expired. So... Basically, this is part of the news of the time. Now, when they say the bit about them being outlaws has expired, that's because Australia was about to federate all of the states into one nation, which only happened in 1900. So the laws to allow them to track down these guys under the outlaw laws, the laws about outlaws, was about to expire. And that actually gets a mention in the movie as well. The movie is... Uh, it's, it came at an interesting time of, of Australia's history in 1989 and I'll tell you why it was so unpopular at the time after we talk about the film a little bit. Now the movie, he does have really excellent cast in it. The Indigenous actor Tom E. Lewis plays um, Jimmy Blacksmith. Uh, it was Tom Lewis's first role as an actor. He was found at an airport by Fred Skepsy's wife who saw him and, and thought he had the right look and the right kind of personality to play Jimmy Governor. Um, Tommy Lewis is now uh, a very experienced actor. He's um, done stage plays. He's a singer. He uh, He's from the Northern Territory up in Arnhem Land and he initiated a cultural foundation, the uh, Jilpin Art, Arts Aboriginal Corporation. And it, uh, it, that corporation now hosts the Walking with the Spirits Festival every year. So he's given back to his um, own culture by having the opportunities that started with the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. And Tommy Lewis is very good playing Jimmy Blacksmith. He's one of those actors whose thought processes, the thought processes of the characters he plays, are visible on his face. And, and that's a gift that... 
a lot of actors don't have. But and also because uh, he's talked at by a lot of the white characters in the movie, that, that listening skill and that feeling emotions through while listening is something that Tommy Lewis does really, really well in this film. Uh, the rest of the cast is very good as well. You've got Jack Thompson in there playing the priest who educated Jimmy Blacksmith and Jack Thompson playing against type because he's playing a kind of posh, upper-class white Australian, whereas up until that point, most of the characters he played, with the exception of things like Breaker Morant, were working-class kind of kickabout larrikin Australians and in this one he plays a a very tight-ass priest who is incredibly annoying and incredibly nasty towards Jimmy Blacksmith at the start of the film. Uh, You've also got uh, Freddie Reynolds, I should mention, playing Mort Blacksmith, Jimmy's brother. Uh, Freddie Reynolds only did this movie, hasn't got any other IMDb credits at this time but he is very effective playing Mort who didn't get the same religious education and white man's education that Jimmy did and it's kind of more integrated as a human being and I'll explain what I mean by that in a couple of minutes. Uh, Then we've got Ray Barrett playing Farrell uh, the cop with whom Jimmy works as a tracker for at some stage. And Ray Barrett's Farrell is a nasty piece of work. I love Ray Barrett as an actor. It's in one of my favourite Australian films, Goodbye Paradise, that I talked about on a previous podcast. Really great um, actor. You've got Steve Dodd tang- playing Tabiji, another Indigenous guy. You've got Uncle Jack Charles, who then was called Jack Charles, playing uh, an Aboriginal guy in custody, and he's really good at that. You've got people like Justin Saunders turning up in the film as well. Peter Sumner's in there. Elizabeth Alexander, Ruth Cracknell playing Mrs. Um, Newby. And Peter Carroll playing McCready, a teacher who is taken hostage by the Blacksmith brothers as they flee from the authorities. Now, the movie... um, as I, as I said that um, Mort was more integrated as a human being than Jimmy was, the problem uh, from the way the movie posits things is that Jimmy was brought up in two worlds. He was brought up in the indigenous culture to a certain extent and then the harsh and kind of guilt-ridden white British-based culture of turn of the 20th century Australia where... Um, he was raised a Methodist, but there was that kind of sin and guilt kind of thing imposed on him. He can read and write, which a lot of the peop- white people he ends up working for during the film can't do. He marries a white girl, played by Angela Punch McGregor, and the marriage is unhappy for various reasons I won't go into because it's a spoiler for the film to when you do that. And, of course, the fact that an Indigenous guy marries a white woman, even though there's some indications that she's a lot less worldly in some ways than Jimmy is, though she is not unfamiliar with uh, the ways of men, let's say, at the point that Jimmy meets her. And her character is one of the sad and and tragic people that uh, is part of... Jimmy Blacksmith's life and again I won't go into the reasons why but uh, at the start I was less sympathetic toward the character of Jimmy's wife uh, Gilda 
then I then I ended up being at the end of the film. There's an arc there that um, really is a demonstration of how the way things were then crushes various kinds of people and distorts them and and basically is cruel to them. And there's a lot of stuff in this film about white settlement culture at the turn of the 20th century. There's a lot of talk about whether federation of the states into one country is a good thing. There's a lot of talk. There's an antagonism between people born in Australia and the flood of British immigrants who came into Australia at the time post the gold rushes of the 1850s. And so you've got those kind of things there. White culture, you get the sense through the film that it doesn't fit well with the country, with the land. And what they're trying to do is import um, a foreign culture to Australia that doesn't sit well with it. And that's a, that's an, an argument and a viewpoint that we still wrestle with today. How much of Australia is a white culture and how much of it's indigenous culture, how much of it's changing because of other cultures coming into the country through immigration. I'd like to say we're much better at it now than we were then, but there are parts of Australia where things aren't better than they were 115 years ago. But during the film, Jimmy's exploited by white people. He's treated cruelly. He's treated nastily, even though he's as smart as any of the white people in the film and as educated as most of them. He's really treated like a a freak. He's a a black man educated by missionaries, as it says at the start of the trailer, who doesn't know what his place in the world around him is. And he's exploited and ripped off. And when, ultimately, he goes to the farm house of the people he's working for and asks them for more food because he's building fences for them. And they've decided that because his brothers come and live with him, they didn't want the area turned into a black camp. So they're not going to give him the food that he's entitled to until his brother leaves because they then decided that they get to determine who lives where and under what circumstances, even though Jimmy has the land for himself and has built a house for himself and his wife, a very primitive house, but nonetheless a house. And there's a moment where the first act of violence occurs where Jimmy hits someone with an axe. And the way Fred Skepsy has filmed it it shows the way violence is in real life. Often when violent acts occur, there's a moment if you're watching them when you think, what just happened? And then your brain kind of reels back and remembers moments ago and you realise what's happened. But in reality, violence sometimes takes us by surprise like that. And the way Skepsy and his cinematographer Ian Baker have shown it there's that moment that plays realistically and horribly to our eyes. And then um, while Maud stands alongside Jimmy and goes, stop it, Jimmy, what are you doing? He then goes and kills a number of other people and grievously wounds a young boy as well, which starts the manhunt for him and the kind of major 
media sensation of the time. And in this, of course, I read you a bit from the Brisbane uh, Courier newspaper. That's a, a thousand kilometres from where all this stuff actually happened. But it was big news because uh, there, there were other things in the news at the time. Of course, there was the death of Queen Victoria happening around then and um, Federation arguments and the states all coming together and meeting in Melbourne and deciding what the country was going to be when they federated into a nation. With all of that, they had this sensational and gory and kind of scandalous crime which uh, kind of engaged the nation in a very voyeuristic and prurient kind of way. Skepsy filmed uh, Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith in the areas where the events of Jimmy Governor's life actually took place. So the landscapes are right for it. They did a lot of work with Indigenous groups to make sure that they were honouring and and playing fair by uh, the Indigenous cultures of the area, for instance. And the working with a lot of Indigenous actors, giving them their opportunity to understand the film business, then helped start a lot of Indigenous actors in the industry, which is a fantastic thing. There are now some fantastically talented Indigenous actors, writers, directors, cinematographers, all all the aspects of film making are tools that Indigenous Australian people in that industry now have to tell their own stories and that's one of the things Fred Skepsi has said he said if I were making this film today I would not make this film because it's not my story it is actually the story of Indigenous Australians and these days Indigenous Australians would tell that story and Thomas Keneally said that as well uh, about the novel it's not his story it's not a white person's story to tell it's an Indigenous story now I actually had a chat with Mick Murdoch at ABC local radio Northern Territory about this movie last week we discussed it because Liz was sick and Mick and I had a talk around it and Mick asked me a very interesting question he said should this movie be remade with indigenous filmmakers in my opinion and of course this is a white man's opinion he was asking for and I was kind of very careful about the way I answered that but I said that there are a lot of stories that indigenous people have to tell us and there are a lot of ways for them to engage with their own history but this movie I don't think needed particularly to be remade because the way I see it and again this is a white person's viewpoint and I've got to be respectful in the way that I talk about this stuff it's told in the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith the 1970, 1989 film in a way that's respectful of indigenous culture it explains who Jimmy is before it goes into the sensationalism of the murders that the character commits. It shows the different things that are pulling him in different directions. The white guilt he gets from the white religious education that he gets. And the also the earlier education he got as a child from his indigenous peoples. So... I think it balances those things nicely and Jimmy is a well-rounded character in the film. He's not a stereotype at all. He's the most complex human being in the film and Tommy Lewis puts that across very well as indeed does Fred Skepsy in the script that he wrote and of course 
as does Thomas Keneally in the book. But this movie is the reason why Fred Skipsey went to America and made movies like Barbarossa and all the other films that he made in the States. He left Australia after making this film and he put a mil- quarter of a million dollars of his own money into making The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. The rest of it was provided by various funding bodies. But the movie wasn't successful because in 1989, I kept saying 1979, but it's actually 1989, it was the year after the 200th anniversary of the settlement, White Settlement of Australia. And that was a very divisive time. We have divisive times now, but at that time it was very divisive. And I was a very tiny part of that in some ways because on the 26th of January 1988, a year before this movie came out, there was the big bicentennial celebration in Sydney and I was living in Sydney at the time in Glebe and while a lot of people went to the harbourside areas to see this enormous amount of tall ships coming through the heads of Sydney there were celebrations all along Sydney Harbour, there were fireworks displays Uh, a million people were parked on the shores of Sydney Harbour to see this enormous great celebration of white settlement in Australia. I was a bit down the road. I was not too far away, maybe three or four kilometres away. There was a march for Indigenous land rights that occurred exactly the same time. It started out in Redfern, which at that time was a large, had a large Indigenous population. And people walked from Redfern all the way up to Hyde Park in the middle of Sydney to um, protest you know, to make their feelings known about Aboriginal deaths in custody, about Indigenous land rights. People drove across Australia to be a part of that protest. In fact, there's a documentary about it where for one brief second you can see me. I'm not going to tell you where, but I've, I've actually posted on Facebook a, a little while ago um, where people travelled all the way, and, and these are uh, very, very poor people. There were people coming from Indigenous communities all across Australia who got on buses and trucks and anything they could get a hold of to be a part of this protest on in January in 1988. And there was an agreement that the white Australian supporters of Indigenous land rights would meet them down near Central Station and walk behind in support of the Indigenous people uh, and their land rights and uh, protesting Indigenous deaths in custody and education, all those other issues that are still unfortunately a part of what we're dealing with in Australia. And I remember I was there by myself. I went totally solo and the the 200,000 Indigenous Australians walked up the street, up the road, and into the park down near Central Station. Belmore Park it was. So there were all different Indigenous mobs and Indigenous groups and political groups and social groups. Everything was just came into Belmore Park and we were going to march behind them, but we didn't. What happened was people grabbed us by the arm and pulled us in so we'd march alongside them. We were kind of embraced by Indigenous Australia to be part of the protest. And we all, 300,000 by that time, walked up the hill to um, Hyde Park 
and we all sat on the grass in Hyde Park. There were singers, there were Yothi Yindi played, there were all these different things going on. Speeches were made. It was a really great feeling of inclusion from people who, by rights, weren't obliged to include us at all. But there's incredible inclusiveness about it. I got crazy sunburned. But um, we were all a part of it. And we over the hill, we could hear what was going on with the celebrations and cannons going off in these tall ships that were kind of celebrating the invasion of the country that had occurred 200 years before. But where I sat, I felt a part of something much bigger than myself. And I felt that dichotomy between the people who were there on the shore of the harbour celebrating 200 years of white settlement and where I was sitting, surrounded by 200,000 Indigenous people and about 100,000 white Australians and, and other nations as well. And it felt that things could get better. There was an optimism about where I was and, and the things I heard. Charlie Perkins made a speech and Gary Foley made a speech and a bunch of other people as well. Uh, but that was the kind of schism that was in Australia at the time. And that schism still exists. But in 1989, to have a movie like The Chant of Jimmy's Blacksmith come out, where the overwhelming theme of the film was that we had destroyed Indigenous culture to a big extent and we had cruelly treated people. And when one man struck back, we hunted him down like a dog. And he was shot in the face and hunted down and eventually hung in a, a show trial. He's uh, Joe, uh, Joe Governor, the brother of Jimmy Governor, the original person, was shot by police and died. And their friend Jackie Underwood was hung at Dubbo Jail. So the movie came at a time when white Australia in particular was patting itself on the back for 200 years of white settlement in the country. And there, there was that conflicting march by the way nobody was arrested on, on the march there were many many arrests for drunkenness and and fighting and things like that around the harbor but the 300,000 people in the protest march there was not one arrest by police not one but the timing of the chant of jimmy blacksmith was wrong for it to be popular in australia it barely made its money back and Fred Skipsey went off to a successful career in hollywood but the movie itself is a, a fine film it's worth seeing it's not pleasant to watch in a lot of parts and but it does kind of tell a story and give an understanding of the past of that invasion of indigenous australia that occurred over 200 odd years ago and continues in some ways to this day and i, I think it's an important part of australian film history and it's worth watching i think the only if there's a weak spot in the film i think it's the music by bruce smeaton which is very overwhelming and kind of doesn't sit well with the rest of the film it kind of draws attention to itself a little much and it's orchestral and it comes up at an odd spot in the film and i don't think it necessarily works but apart from that i think it's, the movie holds up very well and it's an important part of australia's film history but anyway, I'm going to take a break now um, that I've kind of vented about that film. And please see it if you get a chance to see it. I think there's a copy of it up on YouTube if you're interested. And um, it's it's well worth checking out. And it's one of those movies that the Australian film industry is now belatedly rightly proud of. 
So I'm going to take a break. When I get back, I'm going to talk about a good, honest 1950s adventure film set in Mexico with uh, an English director and uh, one English star and uh, two American stars. And it is Run for the Sun starring Richard Widmark, Jane Greer, Trevor Howard and Peter Van Eyck. Senorita, yes. Uh, Haga, el uh, favor de... Um, could you bring me a stinger? Um, a uh, stinger? Ah, si, senorita. Fine. Now, I like it made this way. I like two-thirds brandy and one-third white creme de mort. Have you any shaved ice? Un momentito. Uh, fine. And shake it up well, please. Si, senorita. Mm -hmm. Hello. Hello. What is it you want? Maybe I could help you. Oh, I've already told him. Yes, I know you did, but he didn't understand a word you said. Oh, well, I ordered a stinger. A stinger? Mm. Oh. Well, you're not at the Stork Club, but we'll give it a whirl. Traiga una stinger, crema de mente y cognac para la señorita, por favor. Gracias, señor Miguel. Easy. I had no idea you were a fellow American. You didn't, huh? Well, uh, fellow American, I'd say uh, home, New York, clothes, Fifth Avenue, perfume, Chanel, education, Barnard, taste in books, doubtful. And what the devil are you doing here? That's a nice bit of meet-cute dialogue between Richard Widmark and Jane Greer in the 1956 action film Run for the Sun, which I am greatly fond of. I actually changed my Facebook uh, picture to a picture of Richard Widmark in Run for the Sun. Um, uh, Robin Penn, who whose opinions on movies I respect a lot. He also um, runs Diabolic Books and Records in Perth. Said that um, Widmark's one of the few actors who can make himself extremely dislikable or extremely likable, depending on the role. And he's right. In this one, he's extremely likable. But in other movies, he's been a total bastard. And a uh, friend of the podcast, Davey Mack, also posted on... Um, my Facebook page, a clip from the 1947 film Kiss of Death, where Widmark as Tommy Udo throws a lady in a wheelchair down a flight of stairs, which kind of gives you the idea of the range of Richard Widmark as an actor. I, I liked him for a lot of reasons, mostly because of this movie. This is one of the first ones I saw him in back in the day. It was showing on late night TV back when late night commercial TV actually had decent movies on instead of Guthy Renker infomercials. And I saw this, it may have originally been in black and white, but um, the movie itself is in colour and it's on a very nice widescreen format and the copy that I have is a really nice translation of it to um, digital media. But the movie is actually a remake as well it's a remake of most dangerous game the 1932 one and of course richard connell's suspense story on which it's based you can find the story if you look around online i believe it may be on gutenberg at the moment because it's in the public domain but this is a kind of 1950s variation on the theme. The script was written by Roy Bolting, the director, who was one of the famous Bolting brothers, and also another um, writer called Dudley Nichols, who was once the president of the Screenwriters Guild and had written a bunch of other very fine movies like Scarlet Street, Bells of St Mary's, Bringing Up Baby, and the 1939 Stagecoach. So Dudley Nichols had a good history in it, and Roy Bolting himself made a number of good films. He did some westerns and things. Uh, High Treason was one of his, Run for the Sun, of course. Carlton Brown of the Foreign Office, a really nice Peter Sellers movie. 
Twisted Nerve, There's a Girl in My Soup. So he had a reasonable career as well. The story on this one is fairly simple, but a really a nice adventure um, story kind of plot. In it, um, Widmark plays Michael Latimer, a kind of Hemingway-like writer who's disappeared and gone missing. And Jane Greer plays Katie Connors, a, a female journalist for a, a big New York magazine, who tracks him down and finds him in a remote Mexican fishing village where he's kind of holed up there. His life's kind of gone to shit. He's, he was on a safari in Africa when his wife left him for another man, and he kind of, he's been on a downward spiral since then. Can't write. He's totally blocked on writing, and so he's kind of just living a not unproductive life in this little Mexican village. He goes out fishing and does things like that. He keeps himself busy. He does everything but writing, and he's a very kind of outdoor kind of guy. Katie's found him, and you know, there's an attraction between them, of course. And he decides he's going to fly her to Mexico City because the road to you know, civilization from this village is washed out and it's impassable. So he owns a little Piper Cub aeroplane and decides to fly her to Mexico City so she can go back to New York and move on with her life and all that kind of thing. Unfortunately, she has a magnetic notebook which um, has a pen that kind of attaches to it magnetically, which she puts near the compass of the plane, which is mounted on the dashboard. This takes them off course, and they're running out of fuel. They realize they're not in Mexico City. This is way before GPS and everything like that. And so they find a clearing in the jungle and crash land in this clearing in the jungle. They're rescued by uh, Brown, a character played by Trevor Howard, along with uh, Dr. Van Anders, played by Peter Van Eyck, who are both living in a large kind of manor house in the des- in the jungle. Why do I say desert? In the jungle. With a whole bunch of um, native helpers and some very vicious Doberman guard dog. The first Brown is very charming and um, a nice host. He's planning to help them get back to civilization at the next opportunity but there are some creepy things about him and about dr anders as well and latimer being uh, a writer and katie being a journalist start discovering inconsistencies with the character stories and it's not too much of a spoiler to tell this because it's not the kind of movie that hinges on spoilers the truth of it is that brown is actually a british traitor who did propaganda during World War II and is hiding out in Mexico along with his brother-in-law Colonel Von Andre played by Peter Van Eyck. Now the how uh, Trevor Howard's character Brown is based on a guy called William Joyce who broadcasted propaganda out of Germany during World War II and was known as Lord Haw Haw. He was um, eventually executed, uh, hung sorry, hung for treason in 1946 but I did a little bit of research on Lord Haw Haw, even though it's tangential to this movie. And I've got a bit of audio about the kind of shit these guys put down to try to weaken the morale of the Allies during World War Two. So here's just a bit of it. Hello, North America. Germany calling. We're operating again over six stations. Two in the 25 and the others in the 28, 31, 41 and 49 meter band. We now present Lord Haw Haw speaking to England. To save the British Empire, it's in danger today. 
would be a very feeble understatement. Never before has it been in such a perilous position. Until Roosevelt and Churchill so needlessly provoked Japan into taking up arms, the greater part of the British Empire felt itself outside the war zone. Of course, to be outside the war zone is not necessarily to be safe. For example, Canada was secure against any attack by Germany or Italy. But she was not secure against peaceful penetration by the United States. So Brown is a Lord Hawhaw character. Um, he's kind of cashed in his wealth and hidden away in Central America for 11 years after the war. Uh, eventually, Latimer triggers, you know, twigs to the fact that this guy, Brown, is the traitor that he remembered from his time in Britain during World War Two, And that then puts them at peril. So the way this links in with The Most Dangerous Game is that Von Andre and Brown decide they're going to hunt down Latimer and Katie as they try to escape from this kind of jungle prison that they find themselves in. And Latimer, armed with only a machete and his wits, has to defeat these guys. They're three incredibly vicious Dobermen and the two guys hunting them and then somehow escape from the jungle. So that's basically the story. It's not too complicated, but it is kind of cool. And there's a few things that, that support this. First off... Um, with Mark and Jane Greer, do have a nice rapport together. Greer, most people know from playing the femme fatale in the classic film noir out of the past with uh, Robert Mitchum. But in this one, she's kind of likeable and, and friendly. And with Mark, said he's charming best with those kind of clear blue eyes. And yeah, the the dialogue's actually pretty good too. It, it kind of works. The they're both intelligent and literate people and literary people in that sense the two characters and even though Katie doesn't tell him at first that she's come down to Mexico to kind of locate him and, and write a story about where he's hiding out they do you know they have a really nice chemistry working for them there then you've got Trevor Howard coming in originally it was going to be played the character was going to be played by Leo Gen or Leo Gen but he um, dropped out because the script had been rewritten uh, by the time he arrived in Mexico and he didn't like the results. So they cast Trevor Howard instead and uh, paid out again the salary for it. Uh, the, I'm reading off Wikipedia here and it's got some nice information about it. Jungle sequences were shot about 15 miles from Acapulco. Locations used for uh, Brown and Van Ander's base was a vast ruined 16th century hacienda and sugar plantation built by Hernan Cortes at uh, Atacamulco, southeast of Cuernavaca. The house and, and the main buildings were rebuilt in the 1980s uh, and turned into a hotel. So that'd be kind of cool to stay in a hotel that the 1950s action film was filmed in. Wouldn't mind that at all. This movie I like for a few reasons, one of which is it's very much in that kind of South and Central American genre that Hollywood seemed to put out in the 1950s, along with other films that I like, like The Naked Jungle, 
and The Secret of the Incas, both of which are starred Charlton Heston, of course. One of the few big Hollywood actors I've ever met. And the story is just so simple and streamlined that they've got time to do the character development. Uh, even though the first, you know, 40% of the film has nothing to do with the Trevor Howard character, it's only when they have the crash landing that things start to get there. The movie, because the the plot is so simple, just you know, they they you get to like the characters. You know who they are, you know what their motivations are, you know what their skills and talents are, and they kind of you know you let the actors inhabit them for a little while before the shit hits the fan, and that's kind of cool as well. There's a couple of nice bits of escape and nice bits of kind of misdirection, and using their smarts that. Um, with Mark Slatterman does in this film and that's always a plus in action films for me seeing people outsmart the villains rather than outpower them or be better at fist fighting or be better at shooting or anything like that but using scant resources well always works really well for me you know, people who are intelligent um, protagonists are much more fun than people who are the best fighter in the place. That um, that kind of has it gives a, a admittedly fake sense of reality about these things. When you go, okay, well, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. He's uh, with the scripts prepositioned the one prop that he needs to make that bit at the end work. And I'm not going to spoil what that is. And the characters are likable but flawed enough that we kind of invest emotionally in them getting out of their situation and you know prevailing essentially and i kind of like that i think that that's something that's missing from some modern action films the that kind of likability and um the the sheer charisma that people like widmark bring to a role like that there's not a common thing these days there are a few modern actors who have that level of kind of viewability and, and likability. Oscar Isaac being one, Oscar Isaac and anything you see him in is fantastically good. And when he's on the screen, you can't look at anybody else on the screen. So matching him up with strong actors is probably the way to go. Of course, I haven't seen the last Star Wars movie, so I don't know how he, how well he's served by that piece of um, franchising. But um, I, I really like Oscar Isaac, and I think he definitely has that kind of charisma that, makes a movie star he's also got the skills and the talent to be a character actor as well which is a very interesting combination but Widmark had the same thing Widmark could play good or bad Widmark could play a whole range of characters and his career continued as he aged because of that he wasn't playing on his looks particularly he was playing on his skills and he took some nice projects I mean pick up on South Street is fantastic and the rapport between him and Thelma Ritter in that is fantastic and even in his later roles um, when he's playing usually curmudgeonly older guys I think Widmark really brought his A-game to pretty much everything he did and I really respected and liked that about him he was a bit of a lefty as well and I liked that in an actor particularly an actor who survived the purges of the 1950s by having a fairly low profile but nonetheless staying true to what he believed which indeed Richard Widmark did this movie I've actually got the poster for this movie there's a, a very rarely used American Daybill poster which has somewhat different dimensions than the 
30 inch by 13 inch Australian day bill posters that I collect. But uh, I was looking on eBay about five years ago and found an American day bill poster of Run for the Sun. It's got a little damage in the top right hand corner of it. But it's still, it's a really good one of Richard Widmark wielding machete while a Doberman attacks him. So it's got all of those nice visual bits for a nice action movie poster. And uh, we've actually got it up next to the couch in one of the two kind of viewing areas we've got in the house. We've got two lounge rooms kind of attached weirdly. And in one of them, I've got the poster for Run for the Sun. And when I was trying to work out which movie I wanted to do for this podcast to go along with the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, I looked up and there was the poster. I went, yeah, I haven't done Run for the Sun. I've made a list now. I've actually, as I may have mentioned previously, I've finally got a list together of the movies that I've done in Paleo Cinema, so I can't accidentally double up. And Run for the Sun wasn't on there, though I thought I had done it. I actually hadn't done the movie. So I thought, yep, this one's definitely there. It's dead simple, good, honest 1950s action cinema. It's not sexist at all, which is a kind of slight rarity in these films. And Jane Greer kind of stands alongside, Jane Greer's character Katie stands alongside Latimer. Even when they've got the disagreements about, and Latimer finds out that she's there to do a story about him. There's not that kind of negativity about females that you get in a lot of movies of the time. And you've got to respect that. And it makes that movie more accessible to us now. As I've mentioned before, movies that don't have groaningly bad kind of sexual politics play better for us in the 21st century because we're more attuned to those kind of things than people had been in the past. But as I said, a good, honest action film... um, with, with the usual location shooting location shooting always works better you look at any classic um b usually action film that you like would be it sands of the kalahari which i mentioned way ago in the podcast or any of those ones having location shooting really does enhance a movie shooting shit in studios doesn't mean a bloody thing but when you've got a good location um that lets the characters and also it probably helps the actors with the process of doing the roles as well having that kind of environment being out of your comfort zone as an actor as a movie maker is a good thing and um location shooting does give that as a virtue i mean there have been movies shot on location that were total shit but it's one of those things which can be an opportunity as well to make something better than it strictly needs to be for the job at hand and I think Run for the Sun is definitely one of those movies. It's um, a bit underrated, not the best action film in the history of cinema, but a good, honest, fun, enjoyable, slightly different, but remake nonetheless, 1950s action film. And I like it a lot. So I'm going to take a break now and I've got a little bit of feedback. <laughs> Mike, 
the delicious spread provides the vitamin B1 your family needs daily. Be sure you put Vegemite next to the pepper and salt whenever you set the table. And we've got some feedback uh, from a new listener, Chris Keller in Germany. Uh, Chris says, Hi Terry, I found your podcast just recently after looking for ones focusing on classic films rather than modern blockbusters, and I'm quite surprised to see some of my favourite films are there on your episode list. My main genres are European westerns, crime and heist films, thrillers, aka giallo films, up to the mid-70s from Italy, France and Spain. On the other hand, I do enjoy American films from the 1940s to about the late 1960s. Just finished listening to your episode on La Mala Ordina. In an interview, Adolf said that they basically screwed two handles to that white van for him to hold on to while the driver was going through the normal traffic in Rome. Adolf said he was shocked to see a regular windshield when he arrived to shoot the scene of him headbutting through the glass. He expected some sugar or other prepared glass, but no. After some argument, they decided they would put a guy inside the van just out of frame who would hit the glass with a hammer when Adolf does the headbutting, and that's how they actually did it. There's another film by De Leo featuring Mario Adolf called Milano Calibre 9, which I actually prefer to La Mala Ordina. Here, Gaston Motion's character Ugo Piazza is the centre of the story and his tight-lipped, cool, almost outperforms Adolf's overacting. Other recommendations regarding Italian crime films would be Violent Naples with Maurizio Merli or Cult 38 Special Squad, both fine examples of the no-nonsense yet over-the-top Poliziotto. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Always happy to take recommendations from people who know more about the genres than I do. And you can't cover everything uh, as far as knowledge is concerned, which is why I rely on people like you to give me a hand with it. Um, I've put them on the list to find copies of, and I do have quite um, adept resources at finding copies of these movies. But yeah, I mean, those, those thrillers are fantastic, and the special effects are pretty damn wild as i said i've got the documentary Eurocrime, which really works well and i've got a whole bunch and this is slightly tangential to what you said chris i've got a whole bunch of um crimmy movies that i've got lined up on the hard drive to watch as well uh you know all the ones that had um yeah, the, the ones based on the Edgar Wallace novels, I've got a bunch of those ones. A lot of things with Gert Frober in it, in them and all that kind of thing. So I'm going to slowly go through those and kind of savour and enjoy them. And uh, yeah, but I picked up other things as well. I went, As I said, I went away for a day and managed to get DVDs in spite of the fact I was supposed to be having a relaxing holiday. Picked up very cheaply a copy of The Man Who Would Be King. John Houston film with um, Connery and Canyon. I'm going to do that on a future podcast. And I got a three pack of war films that I didn't have copies of uh, The Longest Day, Torah, 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 and Patton. So who knows what genre is going to come up next. I'm going to back away from Italian genre films for just a little bit, but um, I have promised somebody that I would do Local Hero the movie with Bert Lancaster in it from the 1980s, which also has people like Peter Capaldi in it. So I'm going to do that next podcast, but I'm going to circle back around to other genres as well, particularly those European crime films, because I've got a great fondness for them. And they're the kind of movies that constantly surprise me. You see things in them, you go, what the fuck? Oh, that's cool. Those kind of movies. And I'm always like, you, you know how you can get jaded after a while watching the same kinds of films? And now and then something will leap out at you and remind you why you're a cinemaphile 
that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. And those um, Italian police dramas really hit that sweet spot for me. But anyway, that's about it for this time around on the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers who now get the credits read out in the style of movie credits for them. And that, thank you, Chris, for the feedback as well. That is very much appreciated. Uh, I'm kind of tossing up which I prefer, really good feedback like that, or whether I like getting Patreon subscribers. Um, both of them are incredibly useful to what I do, as indeed is... Um, iTunes reviews. And now and then I go through the iTunes reviews and go, oh, geez, people are so bloody kind. They've gone to the bother of doing this. And they've said such nice things. I, I really like that. The problem with iTunes reviews, of course, is you've got to go into the iTunes for each particular country to be able to read them. So um, that in itself can be a non-trivial task when you you have listeners from a, a great number of countries. But anyway, thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. As I said, Local Hero, which I've promised one of the, the Patreon subscribers I would do, is up for the next episode, along with something else. I'll find something else interesting, I promise. Anyway, look after yourselves. Keep watching good movies. Watch bad movies. Watch great movies. Watch movies that are G-rated and R-rated. Just watch movies. And I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast and in one week with another Martian Driving podcast. I'll see you later. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema and Martian Driving podcast done in the style of movie credits. Thank you very much to all of the people who've supported the Patreon campaign. And you can do that too by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I'd like to thank Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Dylan, the goat wrangler, Elaine, the scientific advisor, Julia, the casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher, the gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve Sullivan, who is our director of Monster Effects, and you can find his stuff at CushingHorrors.com, and Eric as our set security head. And David Luce is our First Amendment counsel. So thank you very much to all of the people who have supported the podcast financially via the Patreon campaign.